Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart and inspires you to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Good morning, Real Life Church. God bless you today. God bless you wherever you are, uh, in the chapel, on the Glendora campus, at home watching online. Uh, I am glad we can be together however it is that we are getting together. Uh, I've, uh, I've uh, got good news for you um, just kind of something exciting I got to see going on in the life of our church. Uh, fascinating way God was moving. Uh, this, this last week at our preschool was Teacher Appreciation Week. And if you were here last week or if you follow the podcast at reallife.la, uh, I, I shared with you some special ways God has, has been blessing and encouraging our staff. Uh, we had somebody pay for uh, gifts for the staff and we had uh, in and out call us and offer gift cards. Well, one more thing happened this like last week, and it's in the middle of Teacher Appreciation Week. Uh, a company in Monrovia that we'd never heard of before and that we have no connection with cold called us and said, we're getting rid of some office chairs. Can you use a couple dozen office chairs? And so all our teachers at the preschool got new office chairs. And it happened right in the middle of uh, Teacher Appreciation Week. And I think that's because uh, God appreciates the teachers of real life preschool uh, as much as anybody. And so uh, I was just thankful for that. And it's one more sign to me that God is watching over us and taking care of us and providing for us uh, in in bigger ways than we could provide for ourselves. So I was just thankful for that this week. And I wanted to pass the good news on to you. Thank you for all of you who continue to serve at our pantry. Uh, That's doing a great ministry, giving out groceries to people and uh, getting some projects done on the preschool campus at the same time. So thanks to all who show up and help with that twice a month on the second and fourth Saturdays. Anyway, we're going to continue in our series of teachings today called First Things. We're looking at the the letter to the Galatians. And this is Paul's most likely first letter. And he's getting to the, the first things that he taught them, the most essential things, the important things that he doesn't want them to leave behind. He's started a church in Galatia preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, pre- preaching a gospel of freedom. And then he has moved on to uh, another place to start another church. And some, some Jewish leaders, some Jewish Christian leaders from Jerusalem have come to Galatia and said, now you have to follow all of the old Jewish laws as well. You can be Christian, but you can't let go of all the the Jewish ceremonial laws. You have to continue to practice circumcision and all the holidays and all the dietary rituals and all the washing rituals. You have to keep them all in place. And so Paul writes back a fierce letter saying, I preach to you a gospel of freedom. Don't turn aside. And so now we're going to see what happened in a conflict between the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul when they didn't see eye to eye on this. Let's take a moment and pray together. Father, Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us into freedom. Thank you for calling us out of sin and addiction and brokenness. Thank you for calling us out of law and legalism and stale religiosity. Thank you for calling us into a relationship with you where we can know you and be known. Jesus, thank you for the Holy Spirit that you gift us, that we might live by your spirit and your guidance and not by the the statutes of the law. Jesus, help us to lean into life in you and life in the spirit. Pull us out of brokenness. Pull us out of 
stale religion. Whisper into our hearts and help us to live daily in a passionate, committed, ongoing relationship with you. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. All right, we're going to pick up uh, where we left off uh, in uh, Galatians. We're now in Galatians chapter 2. And this is a moment where uh, Paul and Peter encounter each other. And uh, Paul sees Peter change his behavior when those those. Jewish Christians from Jerusalem show up with all their their pomp and circumstance. The the authorities from Jerusalem show up. Peter starts to change to accommodate them. And we'll see how Paul addresses Peter when Peter uh, changes his behavior. Galatians chapter 2 at verse 11. Listen to God's word. When Cephas, which remember is another name for Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, James was the brother of Jesus and a leader in the church of Jerusalem. So when we talk about the legalists coming from Jerusalem, they're usually under James' authority. So so when certain men came from James, he, Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. Now remember, Jewish people would never associate with Gentiles. You wouldn't sit at a table with a Gentile. And now that Jesus has come, the world has changed, and Peter is associating with Gentiles. The, the Christians are reaching out to Gentiles. And before the authorities from Jerusalem come, Peter's doing that. He, he's re- representing the gospel, which now goes to outsiders, and he is associating with Gentiles. But when they arrived from Jerusalem, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, the group from Jerusalem, the legalists who say you have to follow all the laws. They show up and Peter goes, oh, no, no, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't talking to any Gentiles. That's, that's not what we do. I wasn't doing that. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So Paul here is calling out Peter. Peter was a hypocrite. He was acting like the Gospels for the whole world, not just for Jewish people, for Gentiles too. And when the the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem showed up, the strict legalists showed up with all their authority, Peter changed his behavior and said, oh, no, no, I'm not going to act like I'm open to the Gentiles. I'm going to pull back and only hang out with the the inner circle, only hang out with the, the Jewish people again. And Paul says, that's hypocritical. We've preached that the Gospel is for the whole world, not just for the insiders. How could you change? Um, some of you may notice we were in Galatians, we we're reading straight through it, and last week was Mother's Day, and we flipped over and read from Galatians chapter 4, and now we're going back to Galatians chapter 2. You may ask, why did we skip forward and now back again? It's because this is a fight, and why can't you not fight just on Mother's Day? If I want one thing for Mother's Day, so I want the kids not to fight. So I skipped over the story of the kids fighting for Mother's Day, and now we're back. Uh, but Paul's gospel here is apostolic. He is an apostle. He speaks with the authority that Jesus gave him. You have to remember, you have to distinguish the fact that his message is apostolic. His personality may not be. Some of the things we see biblical heroes do are not things that we as followers of Jesus should do. So Paul here in a a heated moment uh, goes after Peter in front of them all, he brags about, and now he's telling all the Galatians. He's writing a record for it. And for 2,000 years, People have had a record of Paul getting mad at Peter and even calling out Barnabas uh, along the way. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, 
says that when you have a problem with a person, you go to that person first. And the goal is reconciliation, not venting, not penalizing them, not calling them out in front of everybody. The goal is reconciliation. If they don't listen to you, you go with one other person because you want to keep the circle small. You want to preserve people's dignity. You go and you work towards reconciliation. And only then do you go broader circle. Well, it seems like Paul kind of went off half-cocked here and uh, blew up at Peter and then wrote a letter to the Galatians making sure everybody knew about it. Um, Paul is scolding Peter for bad behavior and then Paul is compounding the bad behavior in the way he responds to it. But what's at the heart of the, the issue here, what's at the heart of the conflict is Paul has preached a gospel which reaches to the entire world. This is no longer the Jewish faith for an inside group that's been born into the the line of Judaism. This is a message for the whole world. Jesus is the Messiah that has come to save people all over the world who would believe and to unite them together into one family. He will say in Galatians, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. All are one in Jesus Christ. And, and And that's critical to him here. He doesn't want Peter leading the message astray. Verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, to Peter, in front of them all, you're a Jew and yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We've already said that the Jewish law is too overbearing to impose it on Gentiles. Why would we do that? Why are you doing that, Peter? Uh, The next part may be a speech that he gave to Peter, or it may be that that Paul's now done retelling the story of his conflict with Peter, and now he's just expounding upon it to the Galatians. Scholars disagree about whether or not this is part of what he said to Peter in the moment, or if this is now Paul just expounding on it in his letter, because in Greek, there are no quotation marks. In ancient biblical Greek, there's no quotation marks. So we don't know where the speech ended and began, but Paul's going to expand on what he has to say. Verse 15, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by works of the law. A person is not made right in God's eyes by being good. We could never be good enough. You don't want to plan to stand in front of God on judgment day and say, I was a pretty good person. That's not going to work. That's not going to go well for you. You don't want to stand there and base anything on your own works. We are not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. We are made right in God's eyes. We are made innocent in God's eyes when we believe in Jesus. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified. God's plan A for humanity was perfect relationship with them in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, no interruption between God and humanity. They rejected that and we reject that every time we sin. I want life on my terms, not on God's terms. We're like a a willful teenager trying to move out of the house. God's plan B was the law. If you want to do everything on your own terms, fine, here's the manual. Follow all of the 600 plus laws in the Hebrew scriptures. Never break a single one of them. You have to live a perfect life. And if you break one of them, go and sacrifice an animal on the altar at the temple as a bloody, 
graphic object lesson to you of what you deserve for rejecting the creator of life. And then get back to obeying the law perfectly again. This was God's plan B, and it went on for some 1,500 years. And all we could do is prove how inept we were at following the law. We failed over and over and over again. No one will be justified through works of the law. No one will be made right in God's eyes by being a good person because you can never be good enough. God is perfect and demands perfection, and we are never perfect. God's plan B was the law, and we failed. God's plan C is grace. In God's plan C, Jesus dies for us on the cross. And when we believe that he died for us, our sins are wiped away. And then we're called to new life. We're set free from sin and from law. And we're set free to live by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. God places the Spirit in our hearts to guide us day to day, to live life with him and through him and for him. That's, that's the distinction Paul doesn't want to lose here. Peter has turned aside from, from the, the Gentiles, from the, the people to whom the gospel has gone, and, and he sees the authorities from Jerusalem coming, and he says, I better appease them. I better satisfy them. And in doing that, he pollutes in his, in his life, and the way he lives it out, he pollutes the message. He pollutes the gospel because the gospel is not about satisfying the people from Jerusalem. It's not about works of the law. It's not about keeping all the rules. It's about believing in Jesus. And Paul doesn't want that watered down. So he has this, this confrontation with Peter in front of everybody. Verse 17. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves among sinners, because they're eating with the Gentiles, who they've always thought of as the sinners, the outcasts. If we find ourselves uh, among them, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Paul's asking kind of a rhetorical question that he anticipates people might ask. If you're hanging out with Gentiles, are you doing the same things that they're doing? Have you turned back and are living like a pagan now? Absolutely not, Paul says. And, and in the Greek, this is a fierce rejection. Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. That's kind of a, a clunky sentence, but he's saying, if, if I go back and I live like a pagan, if I live a sinful life, then I really am guilty. Likewise, if I go back to the law, if I go back and try to, try to live by the works of the law again, all that's going to show is that I really am a lawbreaker. I, I failed at the law in the first place. I should not go back. I've been called to something new. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Powerful verse. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. When I tried to justify, justify myself by works of the law, I, I proved that I couldn't do it. I proved that I was uh, deserving of, the, of the, the punishment that the sacrifices on the altar get. I deserve death. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. The law has led me to the place where I know I need a Savior because I can't do it of my own right. Uh, it kind of reminds me, I was thinking about this. I remember uh, in uh, high school, I think senior year, I took calculus. And calculus was really difficult, and I didn't understand why I was learning it. I had no intentions of going into a field that required me to, to use calculus. And, but I would memorize these ornate formulas and work on these calculus problems. And 
our, our teacher would grade our homework, and sometimes she'd grade it fast because there were a lot of students in the class, and she'd give it back, and we'd look over it and find what she had graded and, and to, where she had told us we had made mistakes. And I remember one time seeing a problem that she had marked wrong, and I had done it right. I, I looked at it, and I realized I had done it right, and she mistakenly marked it wrong. So I went back to her desk and said, you counted this one as wrong, but it's actually right. And she said, let me see that. And she looked over it and she said, yeah, well, that one, that one is correct. But then she looked down at the other problems. She looked at them again and she goes, oh, yeah, but this one was wrong and I didn't catch that. And this one is wrong. Then I didn't catch that. So here you go. And when I was done, my grade was worse than when I had started. Even though I was correct, I had I'd gotten that one problem correct. She found other errors that I hadn't seen. I ended up with a worse grade than when I started. I could have just kept my mouth shut. That's how God's law does. If you intend to stand in front of God and say, I lived a pretty good life. I was a pretty good person. I was generally a moral person. God's going to say, okay, well, I, you, may, you may find something right over here, but look at all these things where you were broken. Look at all these places where you did wrong. If you try to justify yourself by works of the law, the works of the law are going to kill you. The law will leave you dead. Remember, Martin Luther said, God's law is a hammer to our self-righteousness. It exposes us. It, it shows us that we have no right to think highly of our own good works. And that's Paul's message. He doesn't want Peter or the, the Jerusalem leaders turning back to the works of the law. The works of the law never justified us. Jesus would say the same thing. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus would intensify the law. And he would say, uh, you've been told don't commit murder. But if you're even angry, if you hold on to your anger at somebody, you're guilty of murder all the same. You've been told don't commit adultery. But if you look at someone lustfully, you're guilty of adultery all the same. Jesus would intensify the law to make it clear that we couldn't be justified by works of the law. What God wanted from us was perfection, not even just perfection of behavior, but perfection of the mind. And we unilaterally fail at that. Verse 20. Now, this famous passage from Paul. Uh, highlight this, underline this, memorize this. This is one to keep. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. It all hangs on Jesus' death for us on the cross. That is how we're saved. That's how we're justified. What we are called to do is believe that he died for us and then to seek to live for him. Knowing that we will never be justified by our accomplishments in righteousness. We are made righteous by the gift of forgiveness. We then seek to live lives of thankfulness. Never anticipating that we'll turn back to works of the law and claim to be good people. We will in the end only say it's all because of Jesus and the Holy Spirit that he's placed inside of me. That's Paul's gospel. And he doesn't want us slipping away from it. He doesn't want us losing track of it. But you understand the temptation. When you are surrounded by a culture of people who think differently, you understand the temptation of succumbing to culture. That's what Peter did. 
when the leaders came from Jerusalem and they were important and they had authority and James was the brother of Jesus and they said, we have to follow all the laws, Peter gave in to the pressure around them. We all know what that's like. Uh, I Not that long ago, uh, I gave in to uh, pressure myself, peer pressure myself. Uh, I, uh, I went down to the... Uh, the Glenora Preschool, the real-life preschool, uh, and uh, we needed an extra driver to drive the after-school van to go pick up kids at the school and bring them back to the school. And so I volunteered, and I got to drive the, the church van to go pick up kids from the school. Well, it's been kind of a while since I've spent a lot of time with first graders. My kids are teenagers now, and I, I was trying to think on the way there. Uh, I was in the van with Miss Stacy, our, our children's minister, and I was thinking, what do, I forget what first graders talk about. I don't know. I, what, if, what if they don't like me? I, they, I need to say something so that they'll, they'll like me and want to talk to me. So a bunch of first graders get in the van. We're driving back to the preschool and I turn around and say, hi, I'm Pastor Jim and I have an Xbox and I like to drink Dr. Pepper and chocolate milk. I, I don't even like Dr. Pepper. I'm just trying to fit in. I just want my, these first graders to like me. And so I just said the first thing that came to mind. And this first grader sitting uh, in the front row behind me uh, said uh, to me, he goes, you should probably drink more water instead. Now, that, that kid has good parents, first of all. That's a healthy family. Uh, and secondly, I misjudged my audience. I really, I, I've lost track of what first graders are into. Apparently, they're all health nuts now. I didn't know that. But we all understand the pressure to succumb to try to fit in with a group. And we do it religiously, too. And you right now are surrounded by a culture in which the dominant belief is if you're a pretty good person, things will probably end up fine in the end. If you live a generally moral, well-socialized life, God will probably let you off the hook for the other stuff in the end. Paul wants us to realize that's not the gospel. You don't want to hang anything on your own righteousness, on your own morality, on your own goodness. In the end, when you stand in front of God, you want to point at the cross of Jesus and say, that was for me. That was for me. I couldn't do this on my own. This is about him, not about me. So Paul is, is now after Peter, who's succumbed to the, the peer pressures of those around him, and he doesn't want Peter and Barnabas confusing the rest of them. When we compromise our commitment to God's call, we confuse those who are not yet believers. We, we water down and distort the message. Here's who I'm after in this teaching series. Here's my target audience. You can go to church and talk about how much you like the music. You can go to church and talk about how much you like the community. You can go to church and talk about how much you like the sermons, obviously. But you can do all that and still not be a Christian. Going to church and saying amen doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in the garage and saying beep, beep makes you a car. And Paul wants to make sure there, there are not those of us who are being religious and yet aren't committed to Jesus. And that's the great risk. Because it's very easy to put on a front that appears to be Christian without actually holding to the gospel. That's the target of the letter to the Galatians. So let me ask you a few questions by which I want you to evaluate. Am I really, am I really in here? Is this, have, I really, have I really heard the message right or am I still operating under a religious facade? Number one. 
Could someone tell that I was a Christian simply by looking at my transaction record in my bank account? Could somebody tell that that's what I believe in? Jesus says where your treasure is, that's where your heart is too. And if your bank account transactions don't show that you're a believer, you're probably not. The, the Bible holds up the, the challenge of tithing, of giving 10% of our income to building the kingdom of heaven on earth. Most Christians never even try. And, and the reason we don't try is because we don't really believe. It might be time to fish or cut bait. If we want to live by the guidance of the Spirit, committed to wholly to Jesus, it ought to show up in our transaction records. Now, don't take that and turn that into another law. Paul is at pains to say, don't be legalistic. I'm not creating a list of rules for us to follow. That's not where we're going. What I'm asking is evaluate whether or not Jesus has a grip on your heart. Because when he does, it comes out through everything including the, the bank transition, uh, transaction record. Secondly, could someone tell that I was a Christian but I, by what I talked to my non-Christian friends about? Uh, does Jesus easily roll off your tongue or do you avoid talking about it at all costs? Or, if all your friends are already Christians, are you really following Jesus? Because Jesus says that the good shepherd goes looking for a lost sheep. He leaves the 99 that are safe and he goes looking for the one that's lost. If you have not spent your life looking for lost sheep... Are you following Jesus? Because that's what he's doing. Again, don't try to turn that into a law. Don't make that a rule of what you're going to do today because Paul doesn't want us being legalistic. It's a question of where our hearts are. Number three, do you wake up in the morning thinking about what you need to get out of the day or what you're going to give? Uh, this, is a, this is a good litmus test. Do you wake up in the morning thinking, who can I bless today? To whom can I give today? Uh, I had a, a pastor friend not that long ago ask me, he said, uh, he was asking about why, why real life has had such, a, has such an amazing uh, five years and why, why God, why, why I have these stories about God doing amazing things in our midst. And, um, you know, somebody gave us a, a building last year and somebody stepped forward to offer to help, offer half a million dollars to help us buy a, another property. And, uh, oh, it happened again this last week. Um, we, we received a, a gift of uh, a pallet of bottled water and a pallet of Kleenex. We had more than we had room for. And uh, I called a couple of other churches and said, hey, we have all these crates of Kleenex and all these cases of bottled water. Can we just give them to you? And both churches were surprised at the call uh, that we had resources that we weren't uh, stockpiling or hoarding. We were just looking to give them away. And both of them said yes. In fact, both of them had little pantries and they were going to give some of the supplies way through their pantry. So both of them came and picked them up. That was on Saturday, last Saturday. Sunday morning last week, uh, about three in the morning, I get a text from somebody who's connected to our church who works at Panera Bread, who says, hey, we've got uh, more bread left over at the end of the day than we know what to do with. Could you use some of that for your pantry to give away? So literally, as we were giving away freely, God said, oh, okay, well, if you're going to do that, I'll give you more in its place. So this pastor friend asked me, why is God's hand so clearly on the church? And I, I said, number one, I don't know. Honestly, I can't, I can't tell you a formula to follow. I don't think there is one. Number two, it's all Jesus, not us. It's really Jesus doing what Jesus wants to do. We haven't earned it. We don't deserve it. It's just Jesus doing what he wants to do. But number three, if there is any spiritual algorithm here, it's this. Jesus, when he sent his disciples out, said, freely you have received, now freely give. And when we freely give, we open up a pathway 
through which God can give more. And, and so, a question to ask ourselves, to, to assess our hearts is, when I wake up in the morning, am I looking for what I need to get out of the day because I don't think I'm going to have enough? Or am I looking for what I can give away in the name of love and in the name of Jesus? Because that's what followers of Jesus do. Uh, number four, um, is prayer a duty for you or is it a reward? When you think about prayer, is it a, a burden and a nuisance or is it something you enjoy doing? Now, don't make it a, a law for you. I'm not trying to give you more rules to follow. That's not what Paul wants. But does prayer just bubble up from your life? Do you anticipate standing in front of God and saying, I'm a pretty good person? Or do you anticipate standing in front of God and saying, Jesus died for me? Don't make these into laws. This is, uh, this is not what uh, Paul wants us to do. Instead, Paul wants us to live by grace. Jesus died for us. If we believe and invite the Holy Spirit in, we are no longer bound by the law. We're no longer burdened by religiosity. We're now free to live life on God's terms. It's like this. If you've ever been afraid that you are not worthy to approach Jesus and take hold of him, if you're worried that he is still evaluating you by your lifestyle, either because you think you've lived well and you think you've earned something or because you think you live poorly and you think you don't deserve it, remember this. When Jesus was born as a baby, the first person to take hold of him was Mary, his mother. Mary was chosen because of her humility, because of her purity, and because of her goodness. Jesus was born under the law. When Jesus was born again, when he rose from the dead, the first person to take hold of him was another Mary, Mary Magdalene. Remember, he says, don't, don't take hold of me yet. I, I, my, I'm, I'm not, I, my, my time has not fully come, right? But he, he rises, and the first person who reaches out for him is Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene had seven demons cast out of her. She was saved not by the goodness of her works, but by grace. Jesus has, had delivered her. Mary, the mother of Jesus, takes hold of Jesus under the law. She's a righteous person. Mary Magdalene takes hold of Jesus when he rises again as an act of grace. Living under the new covenant, Jesus has died for her sins and set her free. You are no longer under law. Don't be bound by anxiety that you're not good enough for Jesus. Don't be haughty and proud and think you've done good enough to earn your way there. We are not under law. We live under grace. And just as Jesus delivered Mary Magdalene and set her free and called her to follow so that she had the right to approach him, you have the right to approach him. He died for you. He wants to send his Holy Spirit into your heart and have you live by an entirely different worldview. Let's take a minute and pray. And as we invite Jesus in, as we invite the Holy Spirit in, we invite in new life. Pray with me. Jesus, I thank you for the fierceness of our brother Paul, the way he defended the gospel 
even in a kind of a rough and abrasive way so that it wouldn't get lost, so that it wouldn't be polluted. Don't let it be polluted among us. Don't let us turn to religiosity and law and try to justify ourselves by our own works. Don't let us be polluted by the yeast of the Pharisees, by self-righteousness, by judgment and condemnation of those who live worse lives than us. Instead, help us to see the, the vastness of your forgiveness. Help us to experience deep in our hearts the power of your grace. And then send us out to love in your name. Send us out to live graceful lives so that through us, the world might see you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go be the church. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.